I, when we were praying here at the front, we normally do that to, um, for those who don't know, we normally do that to hand the service over to God so that we don't take control of it because it belongs to God's spirit to move amongst his people. And they're glad about that. Um, <clears throat> those of us who preach have a strange thing sometimes. You spend hours preparing something which in the end you just have to like let it go on the waters instead of holding on to all the text, all the thoughts you've had. And sometimes it's a little bit difficult to hold on to all that God gives you. Um, and so that's why we just release everything to him and pray. We pray for God's spirit to move. Now, um, for those of you who haven't been with us, we are sort of week three into looking at the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatian Christians, young church, young people, fresh with lots of things going on, but also struggles to actually lay a firm foundation for what the Bible calls the apostolic doctrine which we enjoy today and which we actually take hold of as the, the basis for all we do here. The apostolic doctrine, which was actually recorded in the Bible, and uh, the Apostle Paul put by the letters he wrote to different churches, um, actually left us with records to know that this is God's work. It's God's move. It's God moving in our time. It's God moving in this place. It's God wanting to bless the people of the earth. It's God wanting to take away those things that have, that have destroyed our lives and destroy um, in our minds. You know, like Barbara was talking about, the peace of God. And the Bible tells us the peace which passes all understanding, which means you can't get your head around it. You can't get your head around what God's done for you sometimes. And that's good. So we're week three. And... Uh, uh, I've been given the title Unity, and I suppose the first things that might come into your mind are mm, church unity. I'm not too interested in that. Uh, Christians falling out. Mm, well, not meant to be in church, is it? What is church unity? Um, what is it? church unity within the context of just one local church? Apart from church unity, um, and so the word, if I mention the word unity to you, it... Um, it wouldn't mean a technical thing, it means to me as I know the physics of electricity and stuff like that. Um, that wouldn't mean anything to you, so I'm going down there. Um, but um, they're both important things. Unity within the context of the local church, and unity within the context of all Christian churches who name the name of Christ is quite an important thing. It's a lot more difficult to get to that point church unity and sometimes we try to get to it by committee meetings and having services together and stuff like that but the fact is all true christians are one in christ all true believers are one in christ it's just the problem we got working it out isn't it it's the problem we got working it out and yet god has given people grace to work it out and to actually understand what god wants to do amongst his people um, but more, more intimately for ourselves, there's very often a duplicity of understanding. Um, for example, sometimes the things we say don't match up with the things that we do. So there's not a unity, there's not a, connect, there's a, a disconnection between the two. And the Bible calls it hypocrisy. And one of the things that's leveled against the church today is hypocrisy. 
isn't it, you know? They're all hypocrites there. Well, I'm afraid everybody's guilty of that in some little way or another. The whole world's riddled with it because we can't keep to the truth we want to own. That's why Jesus came to rescue us and to give us actually something so important. And that's actually the peace with God which goes beyond all those struggles. Um, So there's that sense of duplicity in our own lives which we struggle with. And coming back to the peace again, where we find there's no peace, you know, with what we're trying to work out in our mind and the things we actually do. And the Apostle Paul, a greater man as he was, struggled with this very issue. He said, the things I do, I don't want to do. And the things I want to do, I find so difficult to do. And he struggled with this issue of actually the duplicity that was at work in his body. And so it comes back, all comes back to resting in what Jesus has done. Because there's no duplicity in him, there's no hypocrisy in him, and that's why we rest on what he's done. In the beginning, the Acts of the Apostles, it begins like this, that Luke, in his form, Luke wrote Acts, and he he wrote Luke, of course, it's named after him. But he wrote the record of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Now, if, if, he, if there was any conflict between his teaching and his doing, people would have noticed the duplicity. And some people would try to accuse him of that duplicity. But it wasn't true. There was no duplicity with Jesus. You knew where you stood. His life matched perfectly with the things he said. His life and his teaching matched up with the scriptures, and I'm referring to the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi. As a Jew himself, he was the perfect Jew. As an ordinary person before God, he was sinless. In fact, the Bible says he was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. What an amazing description that is of a person. Holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. And because that's because there was no duplicity in the man. As a man in humanity, he was the perfect man. I think that's amazing. Because it's what we struggle to be, he has been, and he's done it. That's why we can rest on him. So far, um, we've looked at the singular and unique gospel of Jesus Christ, the amazing grace of God, Jesus plus nothing. Do you remember that phrase that Steve brought, Jesus plus nothing? And, um, and, and there's this saying, this grace of God in Jesus Christ, for which you receive not something for nothing, like a cheap jack enticement to spend more, do more, and be more, but everything for nothing wherein Jesus, who was everything, was made nothing, that we might be something when we had or were nothing. He's become everything to us. The amazing grace of God. Jesus plus nothing. In which we're totally accepted, totally forgiven, totally received in the context of adoption into God's family, where we're treated as sons, 
those who receive promises, those who receive inheritance from God, and those and those who are made righteous. Made righteous. That sometimes that goodness, that righteousness which we try to attain ourselves, is that we actually made that anyway. Made righteous, totally acceptable to God. In actual fact, the total wealth of heaven is restored to us, and to quote one of the end time conclusions of all that Jesus has accomplished in Revelation uh, 21, I just want to read it to you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, the concept of that, I'm going to swim in. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. (laughs) Now the dwelling of God is with men. He's come back to us. And we've come back to him. There's total, no duplicity now between God and man. There's unity. I will be their God, and that's a wonderful statement, but the verse goes on. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So it's just a two-way thing. It's a double whammy, as they say. A double whammy. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. He said, Paul, sorry, John, write this down, for these words are true. And so he wrote it down, and we've just read it, you know. The conclusion that God's working towards. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it wonderful this morning? We live in this world riddled with all its problems and difficulties. And yet Jesus has come to make all things new. Okay, let's do some Bible reading. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. You won't find it in Ephesians now, will you? Oh, that's good. Right, okay. Now, um, I th- Steve brought his scissors. Julian brought his fruits. And I brought my sledgehammer. <laughs> you know, when a nut has to be cracked, use a sledgehammer to do it. Especially them tough walnuts and those hazelnuts sometimes. And some people might get the idea that this Apostle Paul is actually using a sledgehammer to crack a nut. You could get that idea, couldn't you? But it wasn't like that at all. If Paul hadn't dealt with the issue then, that would have been a problem for us today. Okay, some people might see the church as being in a mess and all over the place and things like that. 
but if this issue hadn't been put right then, the church were in a lot worse situation and in a greater mess than we could have ever conceived. And lives would have been appalling. Many lives would have been appalling. Because basically what it's about really is about knowing what gives us the peace of God in our hearts and in our lives. Knowing what it is. And the fact is that it's Jesus, through what he's done for us, has given us the opportunity to probably get the best thing that we could ever have in this life. Peace with God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding. Now, I know, and I assume that maybe that may not be everyone's case here this morning, but it's achievable. Jesus wants to do something about that, and he can. And so when Paul um, talks about the, you know, you foolish Galatians in chapter, in chapter 3, no, it wasn't in chapter 3, it's somewhere there anyway, he talks about them being fools, you foolish Galatians. I mean, I'll, I don't think I'd have the audacity and the gall to say to anyone, you fools, you, you foolish gits, you know, what are you doing here this morning? You know, but he had that apostolic authority. Sometimes it has to be used in a way like that. There are several current issues in Christendom, in, in, in the context of churches which are Christian or vaguely Christian, which they're dealing with at the moment. They're nuts, which have to be cracked and they're basically all about not recognising who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That's where the crux... There's a duplicity. There's a duplicity between understanding the grace of God and our lives lived before God. And there are some people, some Christians say, Any, I now believe in Jesus, anything goes. We can't say that. But on the other hand is that some person who's wild, away, wildly away from God and what, what we might look on as someone who's really lost the plot, you know, as far as a decent life is concerned, might come to Jesus one moment and he might get run over by a car the next. And in coming to know Jesus Christ, the moment before has actually secured his life for eternity. It's like the thief on the cross. You know, he was pinned to the cross by nails, just like Jesus was. He was uh, a criminal. Jesus wasn't a criminal. There was another thief the other side. You say, well, some Bible, some... Commentators say that there were more than three. I don't believe so, because when Jesus was crucified, he says one on the left hand and one on the right hand. Yeah? Get the wording of scripture correct, you know, because it's so important. Three there. One of the thieves, one of the criminals, actually reviled Jesus, and he continued and reviled Jesus and, and cursed him to the moment he died. The other thief, he's... He reviled Jesus too. He was joining in with him. But something must have just touched him. So he said, this man has done nothing wrong. And his dialogue changed. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't have 
an opportunity, one chance at all, to do anything in his life, to put it right, or to live a life worthy of the calling God had put on it. He didn't have a chance to go back and say sorry to anybody. He didn't have a chance to say goodbye, family. I've changed. But in that moment, Jesus said to him, he says, today, you will be with me in paradise. The promise of the hope which was given to him. And so it's important, you know, when Paul came to crack this nut, he did it in a way which actually was effective. Sometimes we can try to crack nuts and what we do is has no effect whatsoever because we deal with them in the wrong way. But what the way Paul did it, he was firm, he used his apostolic authority, and he dealt with the issue to issue because there was no duplicity in the foundation of the church. That's what it was about. No duplicity that was actually brought to a unity of doctrinal understanding. It had to be done, and Paul did it. So from foolish Galatians, he, wanted, he went on to say, Who's bewitched you? Now that's a word that the Jews wouldn't like. Because it would mean, it would mean that what they were introducing had come from an unknown source. Who's bewitched you? Where, where did you get that from? Sort of thing, you know. You know, it came from an unknown source. Who's, be, who's sort of, where did you get that from? You know, the fact that you have to live by rules and regulations to actually receive the promises of God and to live in his grace. Paul said, I don't know where it's come from, but I'm sort of suggesting to you where it has come from. It's come from an evil source. It's come from something which is outside of what God ever intended, but what someone else might have intended, and that was the destruction of our lives. Who's bewitched you? And sometimes we can be, if we can be in that position, you know, especially in our minds, who's bewitched you? Who's bewitched you? Anyway, let's read these verses because it's about defence of the gospel, the one gospel. We've had the one gospel, we've had God's amazing grace, and now it's talking about defending that. You know, each one of us in this room here in Herne Bay, or wherever we come from, has a responsibility to defend the elements and the tenets of the gospel. Um, in our membership handbook, we've, we've got that sort of written in the back, what, what we defend. You know, that the Bible is the... Is God's book, you know, it's inspired. And God put it together through men. And it's come down to us. And uh, things like that that we believe in, like we we're looking at earlier in our series, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we believe in these things. And so in Herne Bay, we have that responsibility too. And especially as leaders, sometimes you may not understand what we're up to as leaders. Sometimes you say, oh, what are they doing that for? Why, why do we have to keep hearing that sort of thing? But church is about defending truth. It's about defending the truth that's in Jesus and what it can actually do for people and what it can actually do for you and for me this morning. So let's read Galatians 2, verse 1. Fourteen years later, 
I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach amongst the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet, this was the outcome of the the meeting and the visit to Jerusalem, yet not even Titus, who was a Gentile, a non-Jew, yet even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. And this matter arose because some false brothers, it's interesting he calls them false brothers, you know, people they had connection with in a church context, and they were false. Um, somewhere in the Bible, I, can't, I think it was Jesus who said, beware of those who come to you in sheep's clothing, wolves who come to you in sheep's clothing. And so we always have to be on our guard as leaders to make sure that the flock is protected protected to the truth and for it. Verse 4. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seemed to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been given the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been given the task of preaching the gospel to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter and John, those reputed pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to to do. So Paul's visit to Jerusalem was about making sure this foundation had no duplicity in it. It was an understanding that rules and regulations, especially those, especially those of the Jewish flavor, if you like, should be imposed upon anyone else in the world. Because when Jesus came, it was dispensed with. It was sort of laid aside Not done away completely, but it was an important part in God's dealing with mankind. But now something better has come. And that was Jesus. Something better that gave freedom to the people. There's one thing the people living around where Jesus uh, moved and worked and ministered. There's one thing the people need was a sense of this yoke of slavery taken off of them. They couldn't keep the laws which the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees and all those religious leaders purported to keep themselves. Everyone had problem with it. Peter had problem with it. He said, Lord, shall, I forgive seven, shall we forgive seven times? Is, is, is that the limit? Is that the extent? And Jesus said, no, he said, 70 times seven. 
you know, it goes beyond. No limits to God's grace. We like to limit things and put things by rules, but Jesus takes them away. And then there was the Jesus pointed out, the man who stood on the street corner. Lord, I pray three times a day and I fast and I do this and I do that. And Jesus said, I can't even hear what he's saying. Because there was this duplicity, you know. And yet Jesus said, the prayer I like, the prayer I understand is the one who says, Lord, I've got it all wrong. Have mercy on me. Receive me. It's simple, isn't it? You know, when we tie God down to numbers and figures and anything else, any other rule, it's amazing, isn't it? And I love that time when Jesus was walking through the fields on the Saturday, on the Sabbath, and the disciples were plucking ears of corn, you know, like you would when you was on a walk, Maggie, um, stealing the farmer's crops, if you like. And... Um, these Jewish religious leaders, they said, look at them working on the Sabbath. Stretch, talking about putting a camel through the eye of a needle or taking a sledge to crack a nut. He said, you got it wrong, boys. He said, actually, the Sabbath was made for man, not man, the Sabbath. You know, it's, we've all got it, we've got it round the wrong way. And so, you know... What Paul was doing here was just taking this burden off of the people and giving them freedom. But, you know, this, this burden of slavery is still in our world today. It's still in our world. And so we need to defend it with truth. So if we, if we as preachers seem to be overstretching the mark, I hope you forgive us. Because we just want to lay this foundation and say God has given us freedom in Christ Jesus, the freedom. I know a young man who went to church in Faversham, and um, in that particular church, they all wore suits and ties every Sunday, the men anyway. The women wore their hats, and, and the young man was going there, and he, hot daylight today, left his suit and his tie off. After the meeting, he was taken aside and asked why he'd left his suit at home and his tie off, and he would come next Sunday dressed properly. Now, the Jews had all sorts of rules, dietary rules, food rules, not only the Ten Commandments, which I'm pretty sure we nearly all know and could say off by heart, but there were so many other things, you see. But if you start to go down that road of rules... And rituals, we still have rituals in our wider church today. Rituals which actually Jesus dispensed with. You say, we've got no altar here. We don't need it. You know, we don't need an altar. It's part of the old covenant. But in this country, we have this strange thing like the... Like the, the, the hymn, uh, you went, and did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountain green? And, until we have built Jerusalem here, it just smacks of British Israelitism. And the Jewish law, which has been brought over into Christianity, and the Jewish law, which has been brought into Christianity, and the two are mixed up. There's no clear definition about what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. 
And we can't do that. Because it's actually nullifying what Jesus has done for us. He's completed all that God required through the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. He's completed it for us. So we, I'm not saying we don't have to ignore it, but he's done it for us. He's taken away that reproach. When we were praying earlier, I had a picture. I'm just going to leave this with you because I want to come back to it at the end. I had a picture. I think once or twice I've seen a fish um, being caught and it's already got a hook in it. It's got a hook in its mouth and the line is not attached anymore. It's been swimming around, but it's got the hook in its mouth. That's the picture I had. And I'm coming back to that a bit later. So this idea of having to work for our salvation is also embedded in the Old Testament in lots of places, but just to take one and a couple of instances, when the Jewish people were asked to build an altar, there were two quite important things they should do. God suggested to them they should make it, you should get a bit of earth together and do your sacrifice there. Nothing you know, nothing special, nothing ornate, nothing tampered with, an altar, and make your sacrifice before God. There were two requirements. And God said, if you use stone, you mustn't bring a tool to it and work it or manage that stone in any way. You mustn't work on it because I just want you to take the stone to make the altar just as it is and build an altar. A low altar. You get the idea? Tools are used for work. And for this free grace that God gives to our salvation, the truth about not working for what our relationship to God means, we have no part in it. Do you see what I mean? He says, don't get a tool because it gives the idea that you're actually, you add in something to it. Don't work at it. And the other thing was, don't build your altars too high so that you have to have a ladder to climb up on the altar. Because the, the idols that other people outside the Jewish nation were building altars high. The, nearer we, the higher we get to this, the nearer we can get to heaven sort of thing. The concept of building and climbing. The building and climbing. And so you see Paul, who knew this thoroughly, the actual deep teaching of the Old Testament was actually bringing it up into the new. The whole concept of us having to work or do anything towards our salvation doesn't mean anything to God. But it does mean something to recognise that Jesus has done the climbing. He's done the honing of the stone. He is the one that is perfect. And he's the one that laid down his life for us. No duplicity. No duplicity. So it's about the foundation. I want to just go on for a few moments. We've seen the defense of this unique, life-changing message. It was about the foundation. There's a commission to us as a local church to defend the apostolic biblical gospel, just as Paul did if necessary. But I just want to put this question to us. If we're to defend the gospel, how well do we know our Bibles? The Bible does actually talk about rightly dividing the word of truth. Get it in context. 
knowing which passages deal with what people and what situation, and knowing which passages deal with the church and how in that context, what speaks of the past and what speaks of the future. How well do we know our Bibles? I think there's an encouragement there to get into our Bibles and to say, do I know what it means? Can I answer that question? And I understand there are a lot of technicalities in this book of Galatians, and I hope that I'm not bringing too many this morning, but they're there. The technicalities, you know, the deep theological teachings. But for us in Herne Bay, we need to defend the gospel. We need to know our Bibles in order to do that. We need to read good biblical scholars to know what they're saying so that we can do that. I just want to read just a passage to you in Ephesians 2, which sort of brings that section sort of to a climax. Ephesians 2 and verse 15. Halfway through verse 15, his purpose, God's purpose, was to create in himself one new man out of the two, which is talking about Jew and Gentile, thus making peace, and in this one body, the church, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And so to add that point, no discrimination that takes duplicity out of cultural situations. As far as God is concerned, we are all one in Christ Jesus. We've got to work that out. In local church context and in the wider churches around us. There is what we call churches together in Herne Bay, something that some people might be interested in, but it's a good thing to work towards with an understanding of the true gospel that's in Jesus. But I just want to ask the question, because this is relevant to us, how damaging was this other gospel that Paul so vehemently defended and rose to the occasion to defend? If you want to live by rules and regulations, this is the outcome. You will be actually depending on your own attainability and it will leave you vulnerable in this life and without hope and certainty beyond death. Okay? If you want to live by rules and regulations, then you are depending on your own ability to fulfil those rules and regulations. And that will leave you vulnerable in this life and without hope and certainty beyond death. 
The gospel takes in life and death. It takes in eternity. It takes in life beyond the grave. It takes in when you have to stand before God to give an answer to him. Okay? There was this rich young ruler, the yuppie of yesterday he was. He was rich. He was young. And he was a ruler. He had everything going for him. Young and upwardly progressive person. And he came to Jesus and he said this to Jesus, what can I do, do, emphasis was on do, to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, go and keep the Ten Commandments. And you say, oh, there's duplicity here. You're talking about keeping the Ten Commandments and, uh, and, uh, uh, and not keeping them and keeping the other laws and rituals and not keeping them. There's a duplicity there. But you see, Jesus said to him, Okay, you want to live by rules and regulations. He said, there's one thing you lack. I've spotted one thing, he said. You're rich. You're rich. Go sell it. Go and sell it and give to the poor. You see? Well, giving to the poor, as Paul and Peter and the apostles at Jerusalem said, was a concern and an interest. It was a passion in local churches to look after the poverty of the day, wasn't it? And Jesus said to this man, you see, the whole point about it was the young man was concerned to live his life by rules and regulations, and even if we do that, there's still something else, <laughs> still something we, we haven't done. So if we want to live by rules and regulations, our lives will be incomplete. So there's an incompleteness. That's how important this gospel was. To not to live by rules of regulations. I've mentioned Peter, who had the the idea on limited perspective on forgiveness seven times, and the Pharisee that stood on the street corners. Okay, so how damaging was this gospel? Some of the unique, unique things that Jesus provided for those who trust Him are number one, essentially Christianity is about rescue. Essentially, Christianity is about rescue. He's rescuing us. He's rescued us from... Do you get to see a man drowning? Do you say to him, uh, do you throw him a book on how to swim? You say, there's three life belts here, which one would you like? Don't know. It gets more ridiculous, doesn't it? So a drowning man, he wants rescuing. And we need to see ourselves as people that through Jesus has rescued. 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 That's unique because it's the only religion, if you like. It's the only message that talks about rescue. Every other religion is about doing things doing things which we can't do. Secondly, it is about experiencing the promises of God. In the New Testament, Paul says the promises of God are actually yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? It means every promise that God has given, whether it was given years ago or in the context of the current church, every promise that God has given is actually 
energized and brought available to everyone in the earth because of what he's done. Yeah? The promises of God are yes and amen. They're complete. Completely available and completely fulfilled if we're able to trust God in those situations. What are, those prom- what are some of those promises that, that, um, that the Bible talks about? I've come across one recently. It's actually changed my praying. It's changed my concepts. And I've known the verse for many, many years. I suppose it came to light because when I go out in the, uh, when I go out in the morning, you know, you pray, keep me safe, God. When you go on the aeroplane, keep me safe. I go swimming, keep me safe, you know. And you tend to ask for what God has already promised to give. This verse, the Lord who watches over you neither slumbers or sleeps. Except for mum this morning, she's enjoying a nap there this morning. God bless you. Excellent. The Lord who watches over you will neither slumber nor sleep. So why do I have to keep asking for it? But at the end of the day, I say, Lord, I thank you so much for what you provided for me today. It's actually just a slightly different thing on it altogether, isn't it? Knowing Jesus brings us into the promises. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So what needs are there? Financial, concerns about whether the pension's going to pay out, paying the bills, whether we're actually going to know God's help in a medical situation or some other family situation. Um, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. Care for you, meeting your needs. And this one, death. Oh, (laughs) you know, that's the way it is. One of the greatest promises that God has ever given us through Jesus is to actually take hold of us at that moment when we pass from this life into the next. It's intimated it in the, the story Jesus told about um, um, uh, Lazarus and the rich man. And um, Lazarus was a poor beggar, sat out the side of a, the house of a rich man. And it says when he died, he was carried you know, taken. He was looked after. He was protected in that process from life to death. What a wonderful thing is that God has done for us in Jesus. The Bible speaks about eternal life through believing in Jesus, living there. But this process is an important one. Like me, there's a lot of elderly people in this church. Or, you know, We're probably going to face it sooner than other people are the younger ones in the church. But if you're relying on your rules, what's going to take care of you then? Like Frank Sinatra said, I'll do it my way. I'll do it my way. No. Jesus 
I think it's David the psalmist, he said in Psalm 23, which gets so often repeated, and yet the words seem to just float away, don't they? 